Hey everybody, welcome to week three. It is day 33 on the self-quarantine count-up. I hope everybody's staying relatively sane and definitely healthy. I hope that's possible for each and every one of you. Uh, today we're talking, not we, me, me at you, talking about liberal individualism, uh, which is yet another perspective uh, from the liberal family of ideas, and you're going to see that it connects very much with political liberalism, and when we start talking about economic liberalism on Thursday, you're going to see how that connects with this as well. But uh, this is a different take on uh, what respecting liberty means, what putting liberty at the center of our thinking means, and it actually goes beyond uh, just the political philosophy. I have a diagram here today, and uh, I have the government and society uh, on this. Liberal individualism really is about a relationship between the individual and others. Uh, and the two main others that are paid attention to in the liberal discourse are the government, uh, which is both the protector, as we've talked about, and the threat, and society, which is uh, a potential threat as well. Today's reading was the entirety of Mill's uh, classic and major liberal uh, uh, essay on liberty. And really, Mill hardly talks about the government at all. He's looking at society as a potential threat. And really, at that point in the sort of the development of liberalism as a, a political philosophy, there had been a decent amount of attention paid to both the protector and threat uh, aspect of uh, the, uh, the government. And society uh, as a potential threat was really not talked about, right? There, there wasn't a sense that liberalism was about a relationship between the individual and others. It was really that uh, liberalism was about a relationship between the individual and the government. The primary threat early in the development of liberalism was seen as the government. But Mill brings attention to the fact that there uh, are other threats and in fact society might be the bigger threat. Now he's writing from the middle of the 19th century from England where conformism and social pressure and what he ends up calling social tyranny were much more present uh, than in other times and places and definitely much more present than uh, in the world of the early liberal writers and in the experience of uh, sort of the founding generation of Americans uh, <clears throat> and uh, even Locke. Uh, who was in the same country as uh, Mill, but, but in a different time, or at least his experience was uh, not one where social tyranny was necessarily a problem. So liberal individualism is about a broader stance about the relationship of the sovereign individual to others, to the rest of the world. Uh, <clears throat> so you'll see, we'll see a lot of connections, but it's, it, it, it's, it's a sort of bigger picture view. When we start talking about economic liberalism, that's about one specific relationship that will really go through uh, the government. So economic liberalism and political liberalism are very close cousins in, in this family of ideas. Um, I'm going to discuss the model I've laid out today. I'm starting with a full board, and I'm going to do a lot of gesturing, but not a lot of writing, and my chalk is down, and I'm hoping never, not to actually sully this diagram with chalk, but it, it could happen, so the chalk is there ready to go. But I started with a, with, with a, uh, a model, and uh, I'm going to first discuss the model and go through all the different elements, and then I'm going to get to the question that I want in the back of your mind the whole time, why should we accept this model? Uh, liberalism is you know, based on the claim that we should accept this model. We should put the sovereign individual, 
at the center of our thinking, uh, and in the case of liberal individualism, not just the center of our political thinking, but the center of our uh, moral thinking, the center of our uh, sociological thinking, and also the center of our economic thinking. Um, the idea of liberal individualism is that we respect the individual's sphere of liberty, that that is the primary thing that we're doing. Other moral, political, uh, societal tasks maybe could get uh, pursued, but this is the primary task. And the primary claim is we should accept this model, not just that this is true about people, but it, that uh, it is something that we should make true of the world, uh, and that uh, other claims upon what we as a society should do uh, are secondary. And if there are conflicts between what is demanded by respecting the individual sphere of liberty and other things that, me, that we might want to pursue, uh, then those uh, secondary goals have to give way. So I'm going to talk about the model, and then I'm going to uh, move to the argument. And you read Mills on Liberty, which is a very clear, straightforward, almost kind of paradigmatic, straightforward argument for this proposition. And Mill, Mill does, uh, he essentially invents the, what will later become the classic five-paragraph essay, though he obviously, it's more than five paragraphs, but which is you have a thesis and then you present your arguments and you address the counter-arguments uh, and you uh, show why it is that despite the strength of the counter-arguments, you have stronger arguments in your favor. So Mill really, his, the whole of On Liberty, uh, it's, it's a great exploration of what it means to actually uh, respect the individual sphere of liberty, but it's also a great model for argumentation. <clears throat> it's very systematic. So Mill goes through and answers why should we accept this model. Mill's premises uh, are, or his, I shouldn't say his premises, his assumptions, the, the way that he goes about making this argument are based on a background utilitarian uh, philosophy. Uh, so he's making a, what would be called a consequentialist argument for accepting this model. There, uh, in, in uh, ethical thinking, there are two basic models for how you approach uh, sort of moral thinking, but also how you approach moral argumentation. One is the consequentialist model, where you look at the consequences of choices and say, well, we should be doing, we should be seeking to promote some set of consequences, right? Utilitarianism is the most familiar version of the consequentialist argument. It's not the only one, but it's the most familiar where the consequence that we want to pursue is maximizing overall happiness. Uh, <clears throat> and that's the assumption that Mill is making when he makes this argument. In his other works, uh, and particularly in the book called Utilitarianism, he makes the argument for the consequentialist approach. Uh, and I'll allude to that a little bit when I talk about Mill, but uh, we don't need to explore fully his argument for utilitarianism. For the point of view of this lecture today and of our course, utilitarianism is one approach to answering this question. The other big liberal individualist thinker who t comes at this from a, uh, also from sort of a moral perspective uh, instead of a political perspective is Immanuel Kant who makes the deontological argument, and that's the other form of argumentation in, in, in moral thinking. Deontological is that we look not at the consequences, but at the intentions, and uh, we pay attention to ends instead of means. Consequentialism is about means instead of ends. Kant provides us with a different deontological argument, uh, different deontological argument for accepting this particular model. So Kant and Mill, agree on their conclusions, 
and they agree on the fact that we should respect the sovereign individual uh, and maintain the sphere of liberty, they come at it from a different, a different place. So they are both liberal thinkers, and they're both liberal thinkers who give us ways of supporting the liberal individual's conclusion with a different set of argumentative and moral uh, and even metaphysical assumptions about what the world is like. So they disagree uh, on their approach, but they're both really central classic liberal figures. And one of the things that is kind of, I think, uh, interesting about this notion of liberal individualism is that you can arrive at it from either a consequentialist or a deontological perspective. So it's not argue, it's, it's not uh, theory specific in the sense that you need to either be a consequentialist or a, deonto a deontologist to come to this particular conclusion. I think that one of the strengths of liberalism as a set of ideas and as sort of an overall approach to thinking about the political, the sociological, the economic, uh, the metaphysical world is that there are uh, ideas that overlap and reinforce each other without actually necessarily being the same as each other. And so we can get to this finish line from different starting places. Now I'm starting to mix my metaphors, but <clears throat> that's pretty common. Okay, so let me just go through the model. It is relatively complex uh, looking, but it actually is, is pretty, uh, pretty simple. And it's, it, this is going to review some of the things that I've talked about in past lectures. At the center here, we have the uh, individual, right? The person. And they're inside their sphere of liberty. And the sphere of liberty, from the point of view of uh, liberalism, is sacrosanct. It is not to be breached. Um, and the boundary of it is determined by the harm principle, right? When your actions and opinions and ideas don't harm other people, then uh, there's no uh, um, societal or government power is legitimate in shaping, limiting, uh, uh, regulating, or uh, prohibiting or punishing any of those actions, opinions, or ideas. That's the, that's the core concept. Now, uh, one of the things about political liberalism that we saw is that, you know, determining where that harm principle boundary is, that's controversial, right? Um, that is one of those things that there's no right answer. What of my opinions, ideas, actions, words will uh, harm other people and which won't? Uh, part of what we have the government for is to protect the sphere of liberty, to prevent others from invading it. But a big part of it is to determine the boundary. So the government determines and maintains the boundary. We can't really have a uh, uh, liberal philosophy without some kind of boundary maintenance uh, and determination. And we, as we can see, I've, I put in popular sovereignty, uh, individual sovereignty through popular sovereignty to the government. One of the things about democracy is democracy is essentially a, uh, it, it, it's a helper it's part of the liberal family of ideas, but it's really in a helper role. The reason why we want the people to decide the rules is because the rules are very, uh, they, they impact the size, shape, uh, and strength of their sphere of liberty. And so people have a very strong interest in maintaining that. Uh, the boundary also protects us against the potential threat of society. Uh, because society wants to uh, essentially determine the actions, opinions, and ideas of uh, individuals. That's 
it's not as though society is this, this sort of monster or this beast or this conscious entity that's trying to do that. It's just an, an effect of what other people's actions, right? We want other people to think the way we want them to think so that they will do the things that will serve us or that we think are correct. Um, we can't help but want to have an influence over people's conceptions of the good, right? And in fact, society not only uh, is, you know, people want to have an influence over it, that's how you get ideas for your conception of the good. It doesn't even make sense to pursue a conception of the good, or excuse me, to, to conceive of a conception of the good without so societal influences. Uh, as I've said numerous times, part of what uh, is behind this, both behind both of our versions of rationality, is an inner monologue. We talk to ourselves, and we talk to ourselves in a language that is itself a societal production. And then the ideas that we get come to us from others. They don't just bubble up from inside of us, right? Um, whatever your first conception of the good is comes from your family, comes from your upbringing, comes from uh, the, the peers that you have around you, the experiences that you have and the ideas that come to you uh, that way. In order to be able to actually break out of a con conception of the good that is just singular, that's just given to you, right, that's determined by your upbringing uh, and by your youthful experiences, you have to have other ideas, you have to have other perspectives. And where do those other ideas and perspectives come from? They come from other people. So society can't help but be an influence. And liberals understand that. Mill understands that society is something that we need, um, that it provides us with uh, ideas, with resources, with protection, with uh, 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 connections to other humans, with emotional support, all of that kind of stuff. But the, it's also a potential threat. So much like the government, which we need to protect us to first of all determine the boundary and then maintain that boundary, but then it becomes a threat uh, because uh, when other people are deciding on certain rules, they may decide in a way that is invasive to your individual sovereignty as opposed to protective of your individual sovereignty. Society has a similar dual relationship. It's both influence and the necessary influence and a benefit, um, and it's a potential threat. So there's, that, there's always that interplay. Part of what liberal individualism is asking for is to maintain that tension, but to maintain that tension with an, with an eye on doing whatever is possible to make sure that people get to determine their own actions, they get to, uh, they get to form and express their own opinions and ideas, uh, that they get to use their rationality in these two particular ways, right? Uh, I'm, I've now settled on kind of, I've referred to this to uh, creating your own conception of the good by various uh, terms. Uh, I'm going to just settle on one so that I don't have to keep saying multiple ones. Expressive rationality. This is how we express our, essentially our identity. What are you moving towards? Um, <clears throat> for me, I was raised uh, to think that the good was happiness. And that's a common conception of the good, absolutely. And, um, and, and I certainly don't want to say it's wrong just because that's what I was raised uh, to, to think. Uh, <clears throat> there's no right or wrong. That's part of, part of this is our rationality is not trying to find the correct path in the universe. Uh, we're trying to find the correct path for ourselves. It's an expression of ourself. And ourself, of course, our early self is largely a product of uh, societal, family, cultural uh, influences. Um, <clears throat> peers, parents, siblings, the cultural messages we're getting. Uh, the development of expressive rationality uh, means that we are able to take these messages, these influences, these perspectives, and 
process them through our own individuality, our own unique perspective on the world, and come up with our own conception of the good. You may land on the same conception of the good that you started with, but if you don't land on it after having essentially explored the different possibilities and either tried out through an experiment in living your own life uh, or just thought through it, uh, you really are not a sovereign individual. You have, to, you have to be able to actually say, yeah, my conception of the good actually comes from me. The ends that I'm pursuing, the goals that I am out here seeking, really are a result of me. Even though, as we know, they're never going to be fully 100% you because they come from all these influences. Uh, whatever your upbringing was, you're always going to be relating back to and potentially against that upbringing. And, and let's say you change your conception of the good from what was given to you as a child to what you have as an adult. The thing that changes to is going to come from ideas. It's not going to just come from somewhere inside of you. It's going to come from ideas that you get from other people. Um, and part of what the process of your expressive rationality is, is how do you take all of those things in? How do you take in all of those different influences and put them together in a way that is uniquely you? And it doesn't also, I've said this before, but I think it bears repeating endlessly, is that just because you settle on a conception of the good doesn't mean that you have to stay settled on the conception of the good. In a way, part of being a sovereign individual is always holding open the possibility that you're going to change your conception of the good. It's a process. It's not a goal. There's not, it's not as though, okay, well, I was raised to think of happiness, and then I go through the process of, uh, of exploring all the different versions, and then I come down to spiritual unity with the oneness of all things as my end, and I'm done now, right? I've explored, and now I'm done. It's, you, you, you're done provisionally always. Your conception of the good is a conditional set of ends. Uh, and maybe that conditional set of ends is the one that carries you through all the way through the end of your life. Um, that doesn't mean you did something wrong either. It just means that there's always the possibility of reshaping what it is that you're orienting yourself towards. This is an extremely important form of uh, rationality, and it doesn't get talked about a lot by the early Enlightenment thinkers. Uh, as, as liberalism develops, the idea of diverse conceptions of the good uh, it emerges as kind of an emergent property of what it means to respect the sovereign individual. Obviously, we also, our instrumental rationality is how we pursue the good, the means that we use. Our rationality directs us towards ends and then gives us the ability to uh, determine what means moves towards those ends. And again, just because we are using our instrumental rationality doesn't mean we're actually going to get closer to achieving these ends. We, we make mistakes. Even when you actually use your instrumental rationality, uh, in its sort of purest form, and it isn't mixed with instincts and desires and emotions uh, and outside influences, you can still make mistakes because you don't necessarily know uh, that a given choice is going to move you closer to as opposed to farther away. But part of what the rational individual does, the instrumentally rational individual does, is uh, makes choices, sees the consequences of those choices, and determines whether or not that's moving you closer to or farther away from uh, uh, the ends that you are seeking. Uh, so there's a kind of an ongoing self-help aspect to our rationality. Our instrumental rationality is, is gathering information, uh, making uh, cause and effect uh, predictions, and then reflecting back. So there's in both forms of rationality, there's kind of this ongoing reflective process. Uh, now, 
I've mentioned this uh, a couple times, and again, it, it bears mentioning again, is that while liberalism sees this form of rationality, but excuse me, these forms of rationality as being both essential to human nature and something that should be respected, they aren't just born into us without further development. Part of what we need to become full individuals, we don't just land like this, right? This has to be developed, is our potential to conceive of our own ends and to evaluate the world in an ongoing way so that we can effectively pursue our ends, that requires training. And here, as I show, part of what the government is supposed to do is to help train us to be instrumentally rational, right? Through having some kind of basic education. If we don't get trained or cultivated, who does that for us? Well, I haven't put it up here, and I don't want to sell you it. Uh, an earlier version was, well, that was the family's job. That's the, that, that's the community's job. That society's job is to do that. And, I, and so just imagine there's also a train uh, um, line going over here. Society also provides us with perspectives and ideas that help us to develop our expressive rationality. So rationality is, from the liberal point of view, it's fundamental to our human nature, but it's not just, it doesn't just click in automatically. It has to be cultivated. It is a potentiality that must be cultivated. The liberal, the big liberal claim, the big moral, liberal moral claim is that this capacity is superior to other capacities and worth cultivating, right? Instead of just abandoning us to the fact that, well, we're going to be influenced by society. Our conceptions of the good are going to be limited to the ideas and perspectives that come to us and are going to be heavily determined by our upbringing, by our culture, by the community we find ourselves in, by the peers uh, that, we, uh, that we interact with, by the experiences that we have. Um, but rather than saying, well, okay, it's true that our conception of the good is going to be heavily influenced from the outside, so why not just abandon uh, our, uh, ourselves to that outside influence and acknowledge that we are, we are determined by the outside. Liberalism is pushing back against that and saying, that's never not going to be true. There's never not going to be outside influences. But it is valuable, it's worthwhile, and it's fundamentally human to want to be in charge of that process, even if we're never fully uh, um, uh, determining the outcomes just by ourselves. So it's worth cultivating the desire and the ability to come up with your own conception of the good. Now, as I've said before, and we'll explore this uh, in the future, there are other uh, philosophical viewpoints that say, no, it's actually inferior to put that in, peop in people's hands. And if you think about it, it is a lot of pressure, right? There's a lot there, and there's a reason why you can and should be critical of the notion that people should be in charge of developing their own conception of the good. Um, it's potentially lonely, it is difficult, it is also potentially alienating, and it may be that when we ourselves try to put all these influences together in a unique way, that what we're doing is we're separating ourselves from each other uh, in a problematic way. Right? One of the critiques is that this, uh, this viewpoint uh, creates an atomized society uh, where people are actually more alienated from each other than they need to be. That we actually have organic connections that we should be cultivating as opposed to cultivating our separateness and our own unique uh, uh, expressive individuality. 
uh, we'll, we'll get to that later in the course, but I just want to note here that liberalism is taking a moral stand, a normative stand. This is a good thing to cultivate these things. Uh, and then, of course, once you determine that it's a good thing or, or claim that it's a good thing, you then have the task of doing that. Um, <clears throat> okay, so the sphere of liberty means that so far as your actions only affect yourself, then uh, you get to do what you want. Now, again, that boundary is tricky. I have our ideas and opinions and actions as a separate thing, and uh, the I basic idea of liberalism is that your opinions and ideas, insofar as they only affect yourself, much like your actions, should be accepted. And then there's the question of, well, what about certain opinions and ideas that maybe negatively affect other people? Is that even possible? Part of Mill's argument is that your opinions and ideas are, even if they bother people, and even if they seem to cause harm, he's making the claim, and we'll, I'll, I'll move through this argument a little bit uh, later in the lecture, but you should get it, have gotten it from the reading. His claim is that opinions and ideas can never harm other people. And in fact, if they seem to harm other people, that's actually a benefit. Uh, right? If my ideas or opinions make somebody uncomfortable because they go against what they were taught, that's actually beneficial to the other person, even if it makes them uncomfortable, even if it makes them uh, uh, you know, say, hey, no, that, that, that makes me afraid, or that makes me uh, feel wrong, that makes me hurt. Right? Mill's making a claim that only actions can cross the harm principle boundary, that opinions and ideas are always going to be in uh, this place. And we can, that, you know, that's an empirical claim. Uh, he makes a philosophical argument for it, but it's, it's, it's an empirical claim that it's not possible to harm other people. And that empirical claim has been questioned by, you know, such, thing, such ideas as, well, there's, there is, you know, there's hate speech. And hate speech is actually not just uh, a set of ideas and opinions that only affects ourselves and only benefits other people. Hate speech is something that actually does harm them. So, so there, there is a debate that uh, Mill would take a side on, for sure. He would say any type of speech uh, is only, even if it's hateful, is only going to be beneficial to other people, uh, or at worst, it's going to be neutral. It's definitely not harmful. Um, so liberal individualism is respecting the individual sphere of liberty within all of these particular kinds of constraints. But why? Right? Well, I've, I've already given one sort of gen, general, generic answer to why. Um, it's valuable to, ex to accept uh, and elevate the, our rational capacity uh, as a thing that is true of us as human beings, and it's a better thing to do than competing ideas. Uh, so instead of saying, well, we're social creatures and we are deeply embedded in community relationships and family and peer relationships, uh, and we should take those as kind of the, the, the guidepost for how we live our lives, and we should elevate society as a, as a big power and ignore the fact that it threatens our individuality. Sure, it does. Uh, society does threaten your individuality, but it, that's, it also protects us more than it threatens us, and so we should, we should adopt a kind of uh, a societal model of how we live our lives. This idea is that or this claim is that no, we shouldn't. Now, why? So, two arguments, the deontological and the consequentialist. Mill is the consequentialist. His premise, as I said earlier, is that the, our, our moral duty 
is to maximize overall happiness. And his basic argument for that is that that actually just takes into account what we do as beings, right? We are essentially hardwired, he wouldn't have used that term, uh, and he wouldn't have talked, spoken in evolutionary terms either because evolution was still just sort of uh, as an idea uh, forming when Mill was writing, but he, he's acknowledging, he looks at human nature and says, what we do is we naturally try to maximize our own happiness. Instrumental rationality, while the capacities uh, that, that are needed, the skills that are needed to be instrumentally rational uh, have to be cultivated and trained, this is a natural thing for us. We naturally want to be able to essentially make pro-con lists. We naturally want to be able to uh, um, develop, uh, uh, to make choices that are going to make us better off rather than worse off. Uh, and in evolutionary terms, that, that can't be helped, right? If, if you are a being that makes choices that make you worse off rather than better off, you're not going to be around very long, and you're not going to be passing your genes on into the next generation, and so that set of traits will die out, right? Mill doesn't have that argument uh, available to him, uh, and you know he may be much like Locke. He might kind of have a sort of sneaky, abstract theology that well, God just made us this way. Um, if and if, if let's say there is a God, uh, and God had made us differently, then. That would have been a mistake, and we would, from the evolutionary point of view, we wouldn't survive. So if God made us uh, to make decisions that made us worse off rather than better off, we would disappear. Uh, and so we, we wouldn't be able to thrive. So Mill is saying, this is what we do, and a moral theory ought to reflect what we're like. Instead of to move against our basic nature, uh, it, it ought to reflect our basic nature. And this is a pretty standard philosophical move in terms of saying, here's a good thing. This is what the world is like. Let us, let us call that thing that we can't challenge, uh, let's, let's call that the right thing. So we are instrumentally rational beings. We need to be trained up into, into doing it, but it's natural to us. And if it weren't natural to us, we would have disappeared. So we seek to uh, get more good than bad in our lives. We seek to have benefits. So generalize that from the individual to society. That's what society ought to be doing. Our philosophy, our moral philosophy, our political philosophy, our economic philosophy uh, ought to all be oriented towards creating more good than harm. So Mill is elevating what the individual does naturally, though with a need for training to be able to do it successfully, into what society ought to do. Why is it beneficial to overall happiness to let individuals make choices for themselves? Right? It seems actually like that would not be the best approach to maximizing overall social happiness. That might be uh, the best means to one individual maximizing their happiness. But as we know, there are conflicts, and this is one of the things that Locke talks about in this, in, you know, in his uh, story about the state of nature. There's as people pursue their own uh, ends, they're going to run into each other. There's going to be conflicts, and so uh, we're going to ha actually have. While well, some people are maximizing. Uh, their overall happiness. Other people are, are going to have their happiness reduced by other people pushing for that. Like my happiness might be enslaving a bunch of people. And if I am stronger and cleverer than those other people, uh, and I can actually do that, haven't I created a lot of harm by pursuing my good? And won't it outweigh, uh, uh, the, the harm that I create will be outweighed. So we ought to be looking at uh, uh, not privileging the individual choices, but at essentially engineering society to maximize overall happiness, which might sometimes 
require forcing people to make different choices for themselves, right? So if I'm, for example, if I'm saying something, if I'm saying God is dead or there is no God or, you know, it, we're, we're alone in this howling universe and our lives are just this little thing that blinks on and off. If I'm saying that and I'm saying that in a world where most people uh, uh, believe and take comfort from and have uh, a kind of emotional security from the notion that there is this benevolent God and that our lives don't end when we die uh, and that there's the potential to go to a better place, to go to heaven uh, <clears throat> or some kind of paradise. Uh, if I start saying this, that and that makes me happy to say it, right? Like, of course, I'm like, this is what I think and I'm going to spout it around, uh, around the whole world. Then, but other people are like, oh, that, no, that if it creates doubt for them, then we're creating a lot of unhappiness. And it would seem like if we're taking a utilitarian perspective uh, on this conflict, that we ought to shut that person the hell up because they're creating way more harm, way more pain, way more unhappiness than the happiness that they are, uh, that they are creating. Mill has to, he has to essentially uh, grapple with that claim and that is really more or less what he does in the bulk of the book is he grapples with the claim that people speaking their minds and having these essentially unpopular ideas that create a lot of intellectual pain that create a lot of unhappiness that, that get a lot of pushback from society he has to be able to make the argument starting with this uh, consequentialist uh, perspective that that actually is beneficial and not harmful so how is it beneficial and not harmful? Well, Mill, this is where Mill actually has to kind of take a, 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 a you know, an essentialist perspective. There, that there is, uh, he's taking a perspective that there is better and worse. Uh, and here's essentially the argument he makes. Okay, I'm saying something that is unpopular and creating a lot of pain for people and a lot of uh, uh, unhappiness and uh, objections. I'm either wrong, or I'm right, or I'm partially right. That, that, that has to be, if, if there's a truth, then whatever I'm saying has to relate to the capital T truth in one of those ways. Now, as I say, this is an essentialist argument, there's a capital T truth out there somewhere. And uh, it, maybe it's not even fully accessible to us human beings in its full capital T truthness. Like we can't ever fully get there, but it's out there somewhere and we can move closer and closer to it. There's a way of saying, well, you know, the capital T truth, we can't fully know what it is. We can't fully know all that there is to know about the universe, but we, we can get closer to it, right? When we, when we accept that the earth is a sphere, that is orbiting around the sun, we are closer to the capital T truth than that the earth is flat and that the sun revolves around it. Uh, because, and actually, you know, that's one of the things uh, that Einstein points out is like, that's not the full truth. There's, there's, there's more to the full truth. And then we could say, well, maybe Einstein's truth isn't the full truth. Uh, and as physics develops, we realize that the truth is kind of elusive. Uh, 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 as we get close, we seem to be getting closer to it where we're gonna arrive. I'm like, we know how everything works, but it skitters out ahead of us. It doesn't, we don't need to be able to arrive at the capital T truth in order to be able to accept this essentialist notion that there is a capital T truth out there and we want to be getting closer to it. We will be, in Mill's view, and this is, I would say, probably one of the more controversial uh, pieces of it, we will be happier the closer to the capital T truth that we get. Um, that is a really big claim. Um, so there are two 
strong claims uh, that back up Mill's argument. One, it's an es the essentialist claim that uh, there's a capital T truth to be moving towards uh, and that we can, maybe we can't ever know what that is, but we can know where the, whether we're getting closer to it and that by moving closer to it, we will be happier. Now, this requires a definition of happiness that is different than the, um, probably the most common one, which is happiness is feeling good, right? And that is the hedonist version of happiness. And Mill's utilitarianism rejects the hedonist version of happiness. It's not feeling good that makes us happier. It's living more in accordance with the truth of the universe that makes us happier. Uh, that is a pretty big claim. Uh, and uh, Mill also, he, there's an elitism mixed in with what Mill is talking about because for him, intellectual pursuits uh, provide a greater level of happiness than physical pursuits. Uh, and so, you know, reading uh, a great poet is more productive of happiness than playing a game of tic-tac-toe, uh, for example. Um, uh, and the, his, so this notion is that even if the game of tic-tac-toe just makes you tingle with happiness, reading poetry is more valuable because it's, it, it's, it's more about getting us close to this truth of the universe. Poetry is about... Is about uh, essentially reflecting on someone else's perspective on what is deeply true uh, about human relationships, about the universe, about nature, whatever it is. So Mill has an essentialist version of the truth, and he has uh, this sort of non-hedonistic, we can even think of it as elitist attitude about what brings happiness. All of these are necessary to his argument that uh, we, we should respect other people's ideas and opinions, and we should protect in this sphere of liberty, if nothing else, we should protect their uh, ideas and opinions, even when they're unpopular, even when they make people uncomfortable, and even when they seem to produce unhappiness. Why? Well, get back to the whole, okay, there's a capital T truth out there, and what I say, my ideas and opinions about the world, are either false, true, or part of the truth. And in Mill's view, it's almost always going to be part of the truth, uh, but uh, these are the three sort of theoretical possibilities. And he pursues each of those, and he looks at the consequences of each of those. What are the consequences of somebody speaking a falsehood? That would seem to be the easiest case. That would seem to be the case where we're able to say, well, you know what? Those ideas fall outside of the sphere of liberty. Uh, and even if uh, uh, they uh, have some benefit, they're generally destructive. Mill's argument is that and this is, again, it kind of relates back to, to, to the, the elitist uh, premise he has, that when somebody says something that's false, it shakes the certainty of the people who have the dominant doctrine, right? God exists, he's a he, he's a benevolent deity, there's a heaven, uh, all of that, like having all that, let's say all that really is true. And so most people in society have that, doctrine, uh, and someone comes along and says, there's no God, and we're just this, you know, uh, you know, we're, we're just, our life is a blink of an eye, and there's no meaning, and there's, as soon as you die, it just lights out. How could we, if, if, if society has the truth, how could it be beneficial to hear that? Especially when people are like, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. That causes a lot of confusion. Mill's argument is that that attack on the true doctrine if it is true, 
is beneficial to the people who hold that doctrine because what it does is it forces them actually to ask that tough question. And if they are right, if they do have the true doctrine, they have something that's as close to the, to the capital T truth as possible, then they will have an answer. They'll have a rebuttal to this false doctrine. And so the person who's claiming there is no God is actually doing a favor f to the people who have believe that there is God uh, and that there's a certain version of God because uh, it's giving them a chance to actually renew their understanding of the argument. Uh, and in Mill's view, is if you have a if you have a doctrine, and doctrine is kind of a bad word in in, in his uh, sense. If you have if you adhere to a doctrine, even if that doctrine is true, but you don't know why it's true, you don't you can't make an argument for it. You don't have a deep understanding. Then you're not really an adherent of that doctrine, and you're also you're not really happy. You're just comfortable. And then this person saying something that makes you uncomfortable, right, is making you were a little happy, and you're now less happy. For Mill. What that discomfort produces is it produces the desire to explore and say, hey, why is my doctrine true? It forces society, it forces specific individuals uh, to confront their own lackadaisical attitude towards the doctrine. And what it does is it gets them to exercise their rational capacities, to think about it, to reflect, and to come up with a reason why they should uh, stick to that doctrine. And that is better. You're happier. When you actually know, this is Mill's claim, you're happier when you actually know why it is that you believe the things that you do. Uh, but having the true doctrine is okay. Having a deep understanding and uh, a sort of argument-tested understanding of the things that you believe is productive of greater happiness. So the person who's spouting this false idea, uh, while it might make you uncomfortable and it might make you doubt, is actually in Mill's view doing you a favor. So uh, this is producing greater happiness overall. Now, it's a, there are a number of assumptions that Mill's made that I've laid out. It, it's also a process, right? It might be that it creates short-term unhappiness as the people who hold this doctrine are like, what? We, know, we never heard that before. There's, what do you mean there's no, there's no God and we're just like, as soon as we die, lights out. Like, what? That's, uh, that's horrible. I feel... I, I feel insecure. What I die and then I'm just gone and I don't reunite with my ancestors in the afterlife. Ah. But that kicks off a process uh, that is innate in us because we have this uh, uh, rational capacity of reflecting upon our ideas. Now, that's if the uh, unpopular idea is false. What if the unpopular idea is true? Well, if society is adhering to a false idea and adheres the truth and that makes people unhappy right in the short term if then people say oh there's no god oh my god we really do that's that's correct we need to reorient our lives again i don't have to go through the whole process of it but that will ultimately make us happier because instead of being far away from the capital t truth that unpopular expression will move us closer to the truth Right. Um, so just to use the sort of the, the, the round world, flat world uh, 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 analogy or uh, example, you know, when people thought the world was flat, they, you know, they were happy enough because they were getting along and there was nothing out there. Like, you know, you look around, and you're like, yeah, it's flat. And the sun goes up and down. Like, that's great. The, but what that false notion did is it limited our understanding of how the universe worked. 
And by having a limited understanding of how the universe works, we're less able to advance our own uh, ends, our own happiness. We cannot, with that wrong-headed understanding of, of what the natural world is like, we can't uh, do much to actually control nature and advance our own interests and, and, and make ourselves happier. So we are, as a species, we are better off with a clearer understanding of the natural world because that clearer understanding uh, gives us the ability to control nature and bend it to our ends, right? It, it gives us better tools for, having, for exercising our instrumental rationality. So that's an example where uh, we want to get closer to the truth. And part of the problem is that if you're standing here and you, and you are really distant from the capital T truth, but you don't know any different, and you look backwards and you say, well, we're better off than people were before, or you don't even understand what people were like before because you don't have uh, history, you don't have information, you're like, yeah, we're all right, we're, we're, we're decently happy. And then this person comes along and says, everything you think is true is false, like the world is not flat, the world is round, and X and Y and Z, and that's gonna set you back in happiness, but if that then disturbs you and wakes you from this sort of dogmatic slumber, as the phrase goes, uh, and gets you, you being an individual, but mostly you being society, moving closer to the capital T truth, then ultimately we are going to be better off. Uh, so if the utterance, that the unpopular utterance is false, it helps us to, to also understand our own true doctrine better, and that to, for Mill is productive of more happiness. Uh, even though it creates a little discomfort in the interim, it, it ultimately creates a better understanding, and that better understanding is more productive of happiness. If it's true, then it definitely is beneficial. Um, and what's most likely, the most likely case, is that it's partly true. And by being partly true, what it does is it kind of shakes up other people's ideas and forces them to, one, examine their own uh, arguments, to come up with and to have fresh in their mind the argument for why what they have is true, but it's also probably going to move people at least incrementally, uh, and society at least incrementally forward. So. Letting other people say what they want, no matter whether it's true, false, or some mixture, in Mill's view is going to move us, even if it feels like it makes us less happy in the short term, it creates discomfort, it creates uncertainty, it creates uh, that pain uh, in certain ways, ultimately it's going to be moving us forward. Now, again, there's a, there, there are, uh, there's a pretty uh, sizable chunk of uh, assumptions that are made in this argument, but it, overall, it's pretty convincing. Mill then moves to the question of like, okay, I, opinions and ideas is one thing. They're just words. They're, it's, just, it's just ideas. They can't actually have a physical impact on people. Um, it doesn't actually you know, hit their bodies. What about actions? What about actions that not affect others, that clearly cross the harm principle? Like I punch you in the face, that doesn't make you happier, right? Um, <clears throat> utilitarianism does actually have this kind of problem, which is, let's say that I punch you in the face, and it makes me really happy to do that. And you get punched in the face all the time, it doesn't really bum you out that much, and it doesn't even make you that unhappy, and like, you're like, ah, eh, physical pain is not that big of a deal, right? Um, <clears throat> just don't emotionally hurt me, and, I'm, and I'll be fine. Just punch me in the face. Uh, utilitarianism has this problem that, well, if somebody gets more happiness, out of punching someone's face, then they create unhappiness. Doesn't that mean that punching someone in the face is morally correct? 
Um, it would seem that way, but the, the sort of uh, utilitarian perspective is we don't evaluate individual actions, individual uh, happenings uh, uh, as uh, for what effect they have on overall happiness. We, we examine rules of behavior and we examine patterns of behavior. So if I punch somebody, if I find somebody who just doesn't mind being punched in the face and I punch them in the face, it makes me so happy just to do that, like, oh yeah. Uh, and they're like, yeah, it wasn't that bad. That, uh, that doesn't make that a permissible action because the basic pattern of people punching other people in the face uh, is going to overall, it's going to create, first of all, it's definitely going to create a lot of unhappiness because some people who don't like getting punched a lot are going to get punched. But also, it creates uncertainty and fear that cannot be outweighed by the specific happiness that comes from the punchers. So we need to examine from the, the, from the utilitarian perspective that Mill has, looking at patterns and rules of behavior as opposed to individual behaviors, we need to examine what these patterns and behaviors are like. So if we physically assault other people, generally that's going to reduce overall happiness. And so that's why the harm principle is there, right? The harm principle, Mill actually is the first one who names the harm principle. For him, the harm principle isn't some abstract natural boundary around us. It's a boundary that makes sense because of the utilitarian argument. When we let people take actions that physically harm others, uh, we decrease the other people's happiness. And we also create fear and uncertainty that contributes to unhappiness. So in general, our actions that harm other people are not in our sphere of liberty, right? So society, other people really do have a claim on our behavior. Uh, unlike thoughts or actions, which even if they seem harmful, uh, are beneficial to us, and especially if they shake us from our dogmatic slumber, they're actually really beneficial to us, whether they're true or false, uh, or, or have half of the truth. Mill's just like, that's beneficial to us. Other people telling us what to do. Now, why should we let our actions that only affect ourselves physically, why should society tolerate that, right? Um, doesn't the uh, example of people doing what they want, doesn't that potentially undermine social cohesion, doesn't that uh, potentially create a lot of unhappiness as people you know, like see others living in ways that like, oh, that's, that's gross and weird and, you know, and bad, and, you're, you're like, you, and my children are seeing you with your pink mohawk and all of your tattoos and all this stuff, like, that's harming. To Mill, when you take actions, when you live a life that essentially is expressive of your ideas and opinions, right? You're not harming other people physically. Um, and uh, you're only harming them mentally because they don't like what they see, right? Your way of life bugs them. And that would seem to be a problem from the utilitarian perspective because if it's creating a lot of unhappiness out in society, that unhappiness cannot be outweighed by your individual happiness that you get from getting to do your own thing, right? I'm doing my own thing and fuck you. Uh, but, and people are like, oh, that's, that's horrible. Mill makes a similar analysis to uh, our actions that only affect ourselves to the analysis he makes of ideas and opinions, which is that when you do this, you're providing an example of how to live a human life that is either true, false, or contains part of the truth. 
these, your, your lifestyle, which is not a term Mill uses, but definitely is a term that can easily be uh, understood as, as what he's talking about. Your lifestyle either is closer to the true way of living, farther from it, or some, you know, or it's either closer or farther, it's not going to definitely be the, the, the right one. So it's a partial truth. Again, much like ideas, if you create discomfort in people by your way of living, even if they reject your lifestyle choice and they say, you know what, I'm not going to cover myself with tattoos and wear a mohawk and you know, have an anarchist uh, uh, symbol on my black leather jacket, I'm not going to live like that, right? It's a classic example of a nonconformist. Um, <clears throat> well, why am I living the way I'm living? Why am I living what that guy is calling a straight life? Like, why am I being so establishment? Uh, it's going to, similarly to someone's words and opinions, other people's actions are essentially a physical manifestation of their ideas and opinions, and they are no different than those ideas and opinions. As long as that person doesn't physically harm me, their example is really, actions that, that impact yourself are really just ideas and opinions made three-dimensional and physical in the world. And the same process, the same argument that Mill makes uh, about why unpopular ideas are actually beneficial to people, even if they're false, right? So your way of living is bad, right? You're doing it, like you're, you know, you're, you're smoking, you're drinking, you're being self-destructive, you're wearing a mobile, you're, you're, you're covering, you're putting tattoos in your face so that you can't get a job. All of this stuff, all of these kind of classic critiques of, of these alternative uh, ways of presenting yourself to the world, that, yeah, it's like, oh, my kids are seeing that. Oh, my God, they can't. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna make their lives worse. Uh, from Mill's point of view, if that is a bad way of living, then seeing it is going to make people think, like, well, why is that a bad way of living? I was just always told that was bad. I was raised that way. I have these preconceived notions. Now I actually have to confront my own preconceived notions about alternative lifestyles. And I will either change my way of living. I'll be like, yeah, you know what? You really can just look the way you want to look. That's, I guess that person's showing me that that's allowed and that will free you up. Ultimately, you will be happier. Or you say, yeah, you know what? Like that just, that's not a way to live. That's, 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 that's crazy. Why is it not a way to live? Well, it's not a way to live because it distances people rather than brings them together. It, uh, it actually conveys a kind of a selfishness, not self-expression. You have to go through, much like you had to go through when the person said God doesn't exist and when we die, the lights are just out, going through that process of evaluating your own assumptions, evaluating the things that uh, are behind you living your life the way you live, and either you will change your way of living and move you closer to the truth, or you will not change the way you're living and you will better, but, excuse me, not and, but you will better understand why it is that you're living the way you're living. You will be happier as a person who knows why they made the choices that they made. Now, to go back to the conception of the good, right? One of the things about people taking actions that affect only themselves is uh, people living their lives oriented towards a conception of the good that is not the same conception of the good that you personally might have, right? Um, I'm living my life, uh, you know, to be happy because that's the way I was raised. That was, the, that was the dominant conception of the good in my family, in the community that I grew up in, in the culture that I grew up in. That was all the messages that I got from all the places, right? Your job as a human being is to be happy. And when you're unhappy, that's a problem and you need to use your instrumental rationality to figure out how to get happy again. Then I see somebody who's living their life 
uh, not oriented towards happiness, but living their life oriented towards spiritual unity with the oneness of all being. And uh, I use this as an example because that was something that I saw when I, as a teenager, I started to be aware of the fact that that was a different conception of the good. I didn't have this language for it right away, um, though I did start reading uh, uh, Kahn and Mill when I was 17 years old, so I started to get this language for it. But like, I started to see, it was like, wait, there are people, and they're not actually living their life to be the happiest. In fact, they, happiness, it's not that they're making themselves unhappier, it's just that happiness isn't even a metric. They're not using that value to determine whether or not their uh, choices are the right choices for them or the wrong choices for them. They are using a, a, an entirely different value system. And that can shake you, for sure. And it's, it, it, in Mill's perspective, it should shake you, right? If you, if you see other people living their lives oriented towards different conceptions of the good, uh, hopefully you're paying enough attention to be shaken by that because otherwise it's it's a waste to you, right? Now, of course, you're gonna there's gonna be a lot of examples of life that you don't see and that are wasted on you, but when you see somebody pursuing a different set of ends than you are, uh, that has the potential to, and ultimately, if, uh, if you're living your life with attention to what's going on around you, it will shake you. And you might then say, oh, wow, that's a value system that I think I'm going to try and I'm going to see if that feels like an authentic expression of who I really am. And it's going to open you up and now you're going to, you're going to change your actions. Um, maybe you're going to be less happy in the, in the sense of like, well, I was pursuing happiness and so now I'm pursuing spiritual oneness with all things and happiness isn't even on my metrics anymore. Uh, you might think, well, won't Mill, doesn't Mill object to that? No, because for Mill, happiness is not just this pleasure. It is uh, essentially a, an, an overall orientation to doing better for yourself. Uh, as you take more control over your conception of the good, by confronting other perspectives and other conceptions of the good, and then actually maybe saying, well, I'm going to give that a try, or if you don't give it a try, you're going to be exercising your intellectual capacity to say, no, he, no, here's why pursuing happiness is the right value for me. And then you're going to look, and then you're going to run into someone else who's not pursuing spiritual oneness or happiness. They're pursuing service to others. And then you're going to look at other people who are pursuing uh, power and control and influence. And you're going to look at other people and you're going to see people who are, uh, you know, seeking to just like create uh, an interesting artistic pers uh, lifestyle. And they're like, they're trying to leave a story, whether that makes them unhappy or not. You can look around and you're going to see what Mill would call experiments in living, um, at what we would you know, think of as different lifestyles, but I, I think of as sort of our, as the uh, active emanation of what it means to pursue different conceptions of the good. We're going to see all kinds, you, you if, if we have a society that actually tolerates this, uh, which is what Mill's arguing for, you're going to see all of these different conceptions of the good. And that, uh, so they're all going to be influences from outside of you because you didn't have them from deep within you. It's not as though we have a catalog di uh, written in our DNA of all the different conceptions of the good and that naturally, if left alone, we'll go through and process them all. It takes other people living out their values, living out their conception of the good to show us that that's possible and to get us then to engage in the process of using our own expressive rationality, right? If you just pursue the conception of the good that you were left with, you might be using your instrument of rationality, 
right? You might be using the tools uh, that, uh, you know, pro and con uh, lists, cost-benefit analysis, gathering information, critically assessing it, making cause and effect predictions, all of the features of uh, instrumental rationality. You might be using that side of your rationality, and that means you're using part of your human capacities, but you're not using your expressive rationality. You're not using your ability to evaluate different ends and choose your own ends. And if other people create for you cognitive dissonance enough about your own set of ends that get you to reevaluate what you're doing, even if you land back in the same conception of the good that you started with, you are now using, instead of uh, society's idea, your family's idea, your culture's idea of what you should be pursuing as the, as the uh, good, you're using your own idea. Uh, and that is superior. That is, for Mill, that makes people happier because in, in this broader sense of, of happier. So we should tolerate other ideas and opinions Absolutely, because whether they're true, false, or half true, or partially true, they're going to wake us from our dogmatic slumber, and we either will change our minds a little bit, which will make us better off, or we'll land back in the same place that we were landing before. The same thing is true of actions that affect only ourselves. So essentially, actions that only affect ourselves are just really physical expressions of our ideas and opinions. And if, if, if it's beneficial to tolerate diversity of opinion and ideas because uh, of all the reasons I've uh, laid out and that Mill lays out very nicely in, in, in his essay, then it's also beneficial to uh, give people room to live out their ideas. And then Mill also points out, he's like, if we tolerate ideas and opinions, because there are going to be a lot of people who do, then, but we don't tolerate people living out those ideas and opinions, we're not really tolerating their ideas and opinions. We have to not just hear them, we have to allow ourselves to see them lived out in a particular way. That uh, thinking something and, uh, but not being able to act on it means that you're not actually letting that person think that thing. You really, you, you are not ex accepting their diversity of opinion. Now, Mill's version of liberal individualism actually is, uh, uh, this, this argument, this consequentialist argument comes with another conclusion, which is not just that we should accept this model, um, but we should actually, as a society, we should happily cultivate these experiments in living. That we want diversity of lifestyle. We want a lot of different examples. We want people to translate their ideas and opinions, which vary. We want them to have diverse ideas and opinions, and we want them to translate them into different experiments in living so that we can get the benefit of multiple perspectives. We don't we don't get to fully exercise our expressive rationality if we have an attenuated view of the universe, if we only see two different perspectives, right? Um, uh, if we only see, if we, certainly if we only see one perspective, we definitely are having an attenuated view, but even if we only see two, we're not getting the full benefit. We want to be able to see as many as possible uh, so that we can fully be able to engage in the process of coming up with our own conception of the good, right? If there are three conceptions of the good that we are made aware of, and we choose the best of those three for ourselves, great. If there are 20 perspectives out there and we only see three of them, we are not as close to the strongest, best perspective as we could be. If we see 15 of those 20 different perspectives and we weigh them all, even if we, again, land on the one that we were raised with, we are better off than if we only saw three, and we are definitely way better off than if we only saw one. Uh, so for Mill, there, there is this uh, sort of overall why we accept this model is that it benefits society. Society moves 
all and uh, as society as a collection of individuals moves in a direction where people are, are are using their expressive rationality more. We're getting closer to the truth. We're living out our ideas in a way that allows us to uh, experiment, understand, and really uh, uh, feel the consequences of it. Right? One of the great things about other people living out their uh, their ideas and opinions uh, and pursuing their conception of the good that's different from ours is if that gets you to then experiment with well I'm gonna I'm gonna try that thing right and then it feels bad and you're like no I don't feel like I'm more true to myself or true to the nature of the universe then you'll go back or you'll change in some other direction uh, it, it's actually okay to go backwards because ultimately Going backwards, if if you're going to be rational, if you're going to actually be reflective, which Mill, Mill uh, you know, is saying we, we really should be, we're way better off when we're reflective. If you go backwards and it hurts, then you're going to change and you're going to get closer to the truth and you're going to go further forward. Right? If you go through life never having any problems and just never having any criticisms and just kind of going along with what you were raised with and you don't run into any friction in, in life, you're you're not going to ever have a reason to reevaluate and rethink and reorient yourself. And however far, however close to the true way of living you are, you're not gonna get any closer than that. Uh, and so we actually benefit from failures, we benefit from crises, we benefit from uh, uh, other people making us uncomfortable. Uh, one of the things that I'm very hopeful about in this uh, period of coronavirus is that by taking away calendar events, by taking away all of these opportunities, by taking away uh, interactions, and putting us in a position of having to say, how much of that stuff was really necessary to me? I think a lot of people, some people are missing events, and they're missing gatherings, and they're missing that social contact. Uh, and what that's doing, while it seems terrible, the pain it's causing is real pain, uh, it, it's showing those people how important those forms of social contact are. For other people, taking those uh, those interactions the way that we're so familiar with uh, is actually uh, um, uh, producing greater serenity. It's it's allowing them time to reflect and time to just you know uh, you know be with themselves more. And those people, if they're learning, like yeah, you know what, I don't need to do stuff six days a week like I was doing before. Uh, I think I should probably limit my once we're allowed to uh, gather in groups again. I should limit my uh, contact to once or twice a week. I'm better off with lots of solitary time. Right? Our culture has not has developed in a way where solitary, unplugged in, unbusy activity has uh, essentially been taken off the table. And for some people that's that's correct, right? For some people that that's great. Like the the, the nonstop social interactions, calendar stuff, to-do list things really serves who they are. For other people, it actually is painful and it makes them unhappy. Uh, this particular societal crisis is giving everybody a chance to reevaluate uh, uh, how they orient themselves towards social events, towards other people, towards their to-do list, towards, towards their busyness, towards their work. Um, and, uh, it, you know, I, I believe, and this is where I kind of do accept, you know, some of Mill's uh, assumptions, I believe that we as a society are going to be better off for essentially this enforced experiment in living, right? The self-quarantine, out of 33 days into having almost no contact with other people and living only with the three people in my household and having only uh, the kind of electronic connections to other people uh, that uh, are available to me through technology and having to teach only to an iPhone and not to an actual group of people. That's, 
it's hard. It's painful. And I've, I've learned, one, that it's the energy that I have to give to an iPhone lecture is different than the energy I have to give to a, to a, to a lecture, uh, a room full of uh, students. It's forcing me to know that, oh yeah, I actually really do dig the actual classroom. It really does make me happier. This makes me happy because it's, what, it's, it's not classroom time. It's, it's uh, 10.45 instead of whatever time it would be if I were this far into the lecture if it started at noon. It makes me happier that I can choose my own adventure in terms of scheduling but it makes me unhappier in the sense that when I'm done, I don't have that same feeling that I get when there's energy you know, connecting me to other people. So I now know something I didn't know before because I've been forced to do this. I know what the classroom environment gives me. I know what it takes away from, uh, from me. I, it takes away my ability to decide exactly when uh, I'm going to uh, teach. Putting stuff on the board in advance, I love that. It's so great. This is not something I can typically do in a classroom because uh, usually there's somebody there before me, and even if there's not, I'm not gonna go to class a half an hour early and put a diagram on the board and then teach for two hours. Uh, this is something that I really like, so uh, now I've learned something else about myself. I miss the energy interchange of a live classroom, but I actually really like this. I really like being able to sort of structure my lecture notes visually in advance and slowly kind of make my boards look nice. And for those of you who've taken classes from me before, you know that my boards never look like this. And so, uh, because when I'm drawing on the fly, it's way, way messier, both in terms of the, the handwriting and just in terms of there's just so much going on. Here I can actually plan it all out. So I've, this is an experiment in living. Coronavirus is forcing an experiment in living on us. Um, and uh, it's creating a lot of unhappiness, absolutely. But uh, my view is, and I think Mill's view would be, that ultimately, any of the unhappiness it's creating is going to benefit in the long run. And there are people out there who are, who are suffering, right? I definitely don't want to make it seem like uh, everybody has a, a gutted calendar and a gutted to-do list and that they have time to reflect and pay attention. That's true for some people, and, it, and I, it, it, I feel very privileged that I happen to have all of that opportunity. Other people are out there working their butts off and making sure that people stay fed and housed and cared for and they have less time and they're busier. I think that one of the benefits of that is that it's showing the rest of us to appreciate them uh, and that that's ultimately going to be beneficial for us and for society, right? Uh, no one's ever going to look at a grocery store clerk the same because in the past, grocery store clerks were at best just a pleasant person that you passed by you know, and had a tiny little interaction. At worst, they were annoying, they were slow, uh, whatever they happened to be, like there was just, now we have an appreciation of the fact that, oh wow, everybody who works in a grocery store is actually doing crucial work for us to sustain the lifestyle that we have. So we're gonna have a greater level of appreciation and that I think is going to be a net benefit in happiness. For those of us who feel the greater appreciation and for the people who are uh, themselves more greatly appreciated, right? Uh, the, you know, nurses are going, like, nurses are annoying. They poke us with needles, they make us take our clothes off, they stick things in our mouth, they do all this stuff, doctors and dentists, they make us, you know, but it's like, oh, you're actually doing really hard, really important work. The appreciation I think that's gonna uh, ultimately result from this is going to be a net benefit to happiness. So I don't need to, to keep going with this particular example, but to show that uh, you know, we do end up being better off 
by being shaken, by being going through a crisis, by facing a failure, by seeing something that makes us uncomfortable, by uh, th these experiments in living uh, that either are forced on us by the world, as in the case of what we're living through, or by other people's examples. So that's, that's Mill's consequentialist argument. Um, let me just talk quickly about Kant's deontological argument, um, <clears throat> which uh, is, I didn't give you a Kant reading because I wanted you to read the entirety of Mill, but if you're interested in reading Kant, uh, just go out and find some Kant. Uh, I should probably give you a, a, a recommended reading, but I'm not going to do that. But why should we accept this model on the deontological argument, uh, from the deontological perspective? Basically, what Kant is saying is that we as human individuals, we are ends in ourselves. We are, as sovereign individuals, we are beings that are capable of producing our own uh, conception of the good, right? And um, we ourselves are beings that deserve respect as ends producing beings, right? And so when we look at each other, we shouldn't see each other as a means to an end. We should see each other as ends only. Why? Because we have this capacity built into us and we should respect everyone else's capacity. Well, why should we respect other people's capacity? Why shouldn't I just want to be an end in myself and uh, use my expressive rationality, but actually then also, since other people are in fact uh, part of the pathway to my happiness, why shouldn't I treat them as means only? Um, this is where Kant uh, makes uh, his moral argument from a metaphysical perspective. Um, and the metaphysical perspective is this, and, I, and, and as I simplify it, I may, it may lose, or as I summarize it, I may lose some of the complexity, and so it might seem ridiculously simplified. Uh, I'll, I'll try my best here. Um, the, what, is, what we do is essentially a combination of the way our minds are hardwired, and again, Kant didn't use hardwired, but I think he would have uh, used that term if he'd known what it meant. We have a, essentially a built-in set of categories of understanding. Now, that's Kantian language uh, for hardwired. We have a built-in set of categories of understanding. And the way we make choices is a combination of the categories that we bring to the world and what we experience in the world. Um, Kant sees those categories of understanding as being universal. Uh, we all have the same categories of uh, understanding. Some of us can process more quickly than others. Some of us are actually missing some of the inputs, like some people can't see or hear uh, or, uh, or taste or smell. But uh, we, we all have the same hard wiring, uh, even if sometimes there's some wires that are snipped or some inputs that are, that are stronger or weaker uh, for certain people. We all have the same categories of understanding. Uh, and Kant's actually, it's kind of interesting because he's, he, he also is like, you know, that's what we are like. We don't know what other kinds of beings are. There could be other sentient beings with minds that bring a different set of categories to the world uh, that, you know, like our, our sense of three-dimensional uh, space and of time is kind of a linear thing. To, him, to, to Kant, that's just our, that's one of our categories of understanding. That's a concept that is hardwired into us. And we don't even know. If that's what the universe is like, that is what we bring to our experience of the universe. The universe is the way it is, 
and we can only understand the universe via our minds, and our minds have a certain set of categories that are built in. So there's this universal set of categories, not universal to the universe, but universal to human beings. Um, when we go to make moral decisions, when, when we're, we're looking morally, what Kant says that we should be doing, much like Mill says that we, because we're essentially as uh, instrumentally rational beings, Mill is saying we're trying to make ourselves better off rather than worse off, so we ought to follow our moral, uh, our moral uh, evaluation ought to follow that natural way that we go about making decisions as individuals. Kant is saying a similar thing. He's saying that's true of us. We are all beings who, we human beings are all beings who, who see the world the same way, and we see it through our rationality. And since we see it through our rationality, we should universalize our perspective on the world. And the universalization goes this way. Um, I want to be respected as an ends-producing being. And since I'm no different than anyone else, everyone else wants to be respected as an ends-producing being and not be treated as a means only, right? I don't want to be a means to someone else's ends. I want to be an end myself. And uh, then Kant is saying, so we have to universalize that. Much like Mill is saying we need to universalize our uh, pro-con, uh, happiness-seeking nature, Kant is looking at a different side of us and saying the same thing. Let us, let us take this from the individual level and generalize it out to society. So when we do that, we have to respect other people. And what that means is we have to respect their sphere of liberty. We want our sphere of liberty to be respected. Other people uh, want their sphere of liberty to be, to be respected. Those are true. We should, therefore, do that universally. Uh, so we not only want to have our individual sovereignty respected, um, we want to have as big of a sphere of liberty as possible, but we also want everyone else, or we should want everyone else to also have as big of a sphere of liberty as possible. We, we, our natural tendency is uh, going to be, and this is where I would say that sort of the evolutionary argument goes against Kant, our natural tendency is to want to take up as much space as possible and, at the, at the uh, uh, cost uh, of other people, and they take up a smaller space. We don't care about that. Kant is saying we should care about that because we're not just ourselves. We are each individual. We're all the same. We're equal in this sense. We're unequal in a lot of ways, but we're equal in the sense that we all are ends-producing beings who want to be respected as ends in itself. So it's, a, it, it's, a, it's actually a, a, a lot less uh, complex argument from the deontological point of view as to why we should respect individual sphere of liberty. Does it benefit us as a society? That's Mill's argument to do this, to respect the uh, sphere of liberty. Does it respect our fundamental uh, um, uh, individualism as ends-seeking beings? That's the deontological argument. Either one of those arguments points in the same direction, points in, points in the direction that we should accept this model. Now, clearly, there are some tensions here, and this is one of the themes of this, at least the first half of the class, is that uh, liberalism in all of its guises, political, societal, economic, it produces tensions that cannot be erased. Society is a threat and an influence. We can't get rid of the influence when we get rid of the threat. So, uh, the government is a protector and a threat. We can't have one without the other one. 
there are these fundamental tensions. I'd say a big portion of what it means to accept liberalism overall as a set of ideas uh, in, in its general uh, nature is to accept this tension, to accept the fact that putting the individual at the center of our political, economic, societal, personal thinking is not without tensions. But what we are attempting to do is to hold that tension in a place where we can actually not either say, well, we need to ignore society and just do our own thing, and there's no boundaries. Or, well, since society has an influence, why not just let society be the influence? We have to hold the balance there, and that's a tricky, ongoing thing. Um, we're definitely going to see uh, new tensions, uh, or I shouldn't say new tensions, different tensions arising when we explore what uh, economic liberalism is asking for in terms of uh, uh, what is true that we're going to be respecting uh, in people's sphere of liberty. And there's going to be a conception of what our rights are, and there's going to be a conception of where this boundary should be and what kinds of thoughts should go into determining what that boundary is that are going to be, come from a different angle than Locke and Rawls and uh, Mill and Kant uh, bring it. But all liberals are looking essentially at that boundary and keeping this sort of smiling individual at the center of our thinking. All right, that's liberal individualism. Signing off from day 33 of self-quarantine. Uh, I'll be back later this week.